But first, the sad news today. The Body Shop, a revolutionary skincare group created by the late Dame Anita Roddick in the seaside village of Brighton in the 1970s, has gone bust just 18 years after her death. And I think it's a big lesson for professional managers as to why they should never lose sight of what made the business they run now great in the first place. And what Anita Roddick did was create one of the original purpose-driven brands long before it was trendy to do so, and her customers loved it. They really did. Now, it's unclear what it means for Clicks, which operates the brand in South Africa, and they're not ready to talk about it yet. There must be a little shell shock. They've put a big investment into Body Shop in South Africa. Somebody who's built a brand based on values and purposes, Ian Fur. He founded Sorbet in South Africa. And it's been fascinating over the years, Ian. I'm sure you've watched it with great interest. As Body Shop has moved away from Anita Roddick's core principles, which may made its early fans love it so much to be run by private equity players and accountants and chase the bottom line rather than chase the mystique that was what made Body Shop great in the first place. Thank you, Bruce, and thank you again for having me on the show and chatting as always. Yes, I I think it's it's a fairly typical thing that happens when the founders eventually sell their business to the corporates or the private equity companies and there is a loss of focus. And, and it's very difficult to emulate that. I, I don't think they, they do it on purpose, but they just, just the DNA of the corporate is more focused on the bottom line than it is on, on the people side of the business and obviously on the purpose side. So the power of purpose is, is, is so amazing. Uh, you know, you really can get employee engagement and motivation. If you have a clear purpose beyond just making profits, it inspires and engages employees on a much deeper level and improves things like motivation and productivity and commitment and stuff like that. And the theory goes, if you get that stuff right, yes. then the money flows mm. in. The trouble is, when founders sell, they, they they generally will take a long-term view. When the buyers buy in, they are measured on the growth that they can generate out of a business. And the first thing you tend to see happen when large companies begin to take over founder-run businesses is they start to say, oh, that's expensive. Oh, that training, we don't need that. What do you mean that everybody needs a foot rub on a Friday morning or whatever it is? Um, it, yeah. it tends, therefore, to, to run out of steam quite quickly. And the company that people joined, the company that people supported, is no longer the company that they joined. Yeah, absolutely. So what happens is they start to put profits before people instead of people before profits. And that, I think, is, is the key to the whole thing. That's the paradigm shift that takes place when you get corporate ownership of a founder business and and that I, I suppose if you don't understand what what made you great in the first place which is exactly what you said earlier and you're just thinking about the bottom line and there's always pressure particularly short-term pressure to, to show a return on the investment so so it, it's no surprise at all that people start to take second place along the hierarchy of priorities and so that's what happened and slowly but surely it just waters down until you're just a normal company again and 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 the customers have lost that that incentive because they love that that's what creates loyalty for the brand is that they can align with the purpose of the organization and often share the values so so anita roddick was amazing at that you know she she came along, she started advertising and using women, everyday women, you know, of all shapes and sizes rather than the skinny beauty queens that they often use in, in beauty company advertising. And that was the first thing that started to change. And then she was involved in all kinds of philanthropic type things and she made sure there were natural products in, in, in the makeup of the, of the, of the beauty products they sold and things like that. So, so that was long before the norm now, which which is a very strong focus on, on natural and organic products, she was already doing that back in the 70s and 80s. So it was quite a remarkable business and I think very, very difficult to emulate when these companies came and took over. 
Now, Sorbet is no longer under your control. You sold it uh, to Brian Joffe's Long for Life. They then sold it into private equity. And I suppose, I mean, you must be watching Sorbet, although you've got no say in the way and things work there, with a degree of trepidation that the business that you built may not be the business that you built five years from now, for argument's sake. Yes, I I think that's always the challenge of a founder when he sells the business and the whole family that I was involved with, my whole family was there and we moved out. It's always the risk, unfortunately. But but I'm not in a position to say whether or not that, that culture yeah. has, has been solved. But, but, but certainly it, it is a very different environment. It's a very, very different environment. We, we didn't focus much on the bottom line because we thought that culture was the bottom line. And if you created a strong culture and a strong purpose with values, you would then see the money follow from that. So, so that was the, the, the change. Now it's the other way around, I, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with changing culture. There's nothing wrong with changing purpose. But make sure that there is a culture. Make sure that there is a purpose. Because uh, when you remove that, then there's nothing to coalesce around as customers and as people who work in the business. I mean, Anita Roddick, you mentioned a few of the things that she did in terms of marketing to regular humans, but she also sold her products at a premium. Body Shop used to be expensive, and you got a sense that customers sort of felt like they had part ownership and they were fighting side by side with Anita Roddick against killing off the rainforests and um, using only ethically sourced products and and not having animal testing and people felt like they were part of a movement rather than just customers of a place where they got their favorite kind of cream which is fantastic because not many companies are able to do that and that movement was amazing so when you're part of a movement and and you really support and you become a champion of the organization you become its best advertisement at the same time and and people are, are willing to pay a premium for that and you know to be part of that so so that was really amazing what they did. Very few companies get that right, to be honest. Um, so, so that's what made her so remarkable, is that she had this, this this tribe of people that supported her in everything she did and were willing to pay a premium for the privilege of being part of that movement. Ian Fur, always a joy to chat to you. He's the founder of Sorbet, the Hatch Institute, and of course the author of a book called Culture Nearing, the importance of culture within organizations. And yeah, cultures change, absolutely, and there's nothing wrong with that. But when it changes to nothingness, and that's the sense you get, the business at Anita Roddick, and people were very cross with Anita Roddick, because she probably knew she was dying when she sold Body Shop to L'Oreal in 2006. Um, and L'Oreal, very good at what they do, but a different business. Then L'Oreal sold it in 2017. Um, they made a bit of a profit on the original investment, but not much, only about a 20% gain over over more than a decade. And then, by then, I think the bean counters were out in full force. And then earlier, uh, late last year, we saw the sale from the Brazilian owners to a private equity group, which has realized the accounts are in an absolute mess. They got uh, they didn't meet their targets over the Christmas season. And already, I think in December, we're talking about selling the European and UK shops off and now putting it into administration. I've been curious as to the impact of a big number on uh, on a stock exchange. That big number happened last week. It was the level of 5,000 on the S&P 500. This evening, the S&P 500 trading a little stronger, 5,036. So it's entrenching its position above the 5,000 level. But it's only just a number. And we're often told that we should be not taking at face value the huge rise that we're seeing in the S&P 500 index because it's only been driven by seven companies, the so-called Magnificent Seven. The rest of the companies on the S&P 500, we're told, broadly speaking, are not doing that brilliantly. So how do we look at, one, um, a booming U.S. economy, which is creating thousands, tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of jobs every single month, where inflation is coming under control, where the U.S. Fed is talking about cutting interest rates at some point this year, with a stock market that is booming but only in a handful of shares and where government debt levels are so big 
that they run the risk of destabilizing the whole apple cart over time. This sounds like an academic problem. Professor Adrian Saville is uh, the Professor of Economics and Finance at Gibbs, the Gordon Institute of Business Science. I mean, all of these contradictions and all of these wonderful signals that we're seeing being flighted by the fact that the S&P 500 has hit this 5,000 level just create mass confusion for anybody who wants to put money into the U.S. stock market at the moment. How should we be reading all the signals, Adrian? Bruce, I think uh, the the first point that you make is a, is a very important one. That there's a is a, a disconnect between uh, what's driving uh, the S and P and the broad economy, and it's the you know that so-called magnificent seven, uh, which are uh, on extraordinary valuations. And in fact, if you strip away uh, those seven stocks from the S and P 500 over the last year or so, the market's actually flat. Um, and you know, so that's the first uh, conundrum to try and to, to try and solve. Uh, the second is, uh, uh, you know, perhaps not so much a conundrum, but just a curiosity is how uh, it's possible that the U.S. economy is so strong, you know, notwithstanding all of the efforts by the Fed to kill inflation and the aggressive hikes in interest rates. The U.S. economy remains incredibly strong. So. There's really, you know, at least two things that are explaining uh, the performance of the S&P 500. It's just this uh, magnificent seven or secret seven, um, mm-hmm. and then uh, at the same time, this extremely strong economy, which uh, in a different setting uh, would have pulled the rug out from under under the S&P. So how then do we respond to it? Because we've got markets mm. around the world which exhibit far higher characteristics of value and you in your by your very base instinct are a value investor. But you, know, you can be a value investor and look terribly clever and very, stay very poor for a long time while, <laughs> yeah. while com- until common sense kicks in. Or you follow the trend. And I, I don't know if I'm brave enough to follow the trend of the seven shares that prop up the S&P 500, particularly when I look at the price I'm expected to pay for NVIDIA yeah, yeah. and Microsoft and others who are at the cutting edge of what they do. They're brilliant. Yeah. Oof, they're expensive. Well, <laughs> well, you know, just to stay with that point, um, uh, John Maynard Keynes, uh, you know, one of the most uh, influential economists of the past hundred years or so, says, be careful, the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. And uh, when it comes to those seven stocks, the valuations are uh, are exceptional. They they really are off the charts. And you need to be very confident in the ability of those businesses to uh, to generate earnings that are going to catch up with the valuations. And um, I, I share your your caution um, and circumspection. I, I find those valuations just extremely rich. And if you look elsewhere in the world, you'll find similar businesses as the uh, that make up the U.S. economy on far more compelling valuations. Europe is a great place to look, um, and you find entire uh, entire markets uh, or, or entire market clusters that are uh, on undemanding valuations and emerging markets uh, as a broad raft um, uh, sit on very attractive valuations. There's, there's also you know, a challenge in trying to uh, collate the S&P 500 with the uh, U.S. economy because that S&P index is two-thirds manufacturing. The economy is two-thirds consumption. Um, S&P 500 is... Uh, is uh, 40% overseas uh, spending, whereas only 10% of the U.S. economy is overseas spending. So there's a bunch of disconnects beyond just uh, that magnificent seven that do make it, uh, to my mind, uh, a bold endeavor to venture into the S&P 500 at these levels. Professor Adrian Saville at Gibbs. He's Professor of Economics and Finance. Thanks, Adrian. Listening to that conundrum, Sibonisa Ngomalo, who's Portfolio Manager and Chief Investment Officer at the Old Mutual Investment Group. How are you balancing this value on one side in markets like South Africa with the excitement, the frisson and the daily records that are collapsing in U.S. markets, Sibonisa? How are you balancing customers who are looking at you and saying... We understand that you see value. Uh, What we want to see 
Is returns please deliver? Bruce, uh, good evening to you and good evening to your listeners. Um, Bruce, there's an article that I, I, I wrote last week. We'll publish it later, but it's about expectations. If I take you back to 2008, remember what was happening in America in 2008. There was a financial crisis. Banks were failing. Um, there were bailouts. The market was collapsing. Everyone was scared. If you had taken your money, your hard-earned savings, and put them all on the U.S. market, end of 2008, beginning of 2009, you would have bought one of the best returning periods up until today that actually have been there in markets. The U.S. market has done nothing but a miracle from that point. But what was it about 2008? The expectations were low. The prices were low. You were getting great businesses at a bargain, and everybody at that time was expecting the U.S. market to collapse. It was an amazing buying time. That's what markets and investing is about. Today, the markets are high. The expectations are high. And nobody is actually talking too much. Yes, Bruce, we're talking about the fact that there could be risks, but we're not paying attention to them. Funny enough, in 2008, we were paying very much to risks, and yet the risks actually were discounted in the price. And so you've got to look at where you're starting. And for us, high expectations, like in anything in life, are the bedrock of future disappointments. And so for us, be careful if you're going into the U.S. market. That's a very high expectation. Interest rates are very high. The debt is very high. Yeah, it could get messy here. It could get messy. And that's and that's the risk, isn't it? Because there, I mean, yes, interest rates are going to be cut at some point this year. But I was just looking at some J.P. Morgan studies today, saying, look, don't bank on these markets. Interest rates coming down as fast as the market is betting they're going to come down. There is still a huge amount of uncertainty. And I'm so bored of the conversation, but it's important to keep reiterating this conversation, because markets are behaving, as Adrian Savile put it a moment ago, quite irrationally and can be irrational for longer than you can stay solvent. Yes, Bruce. Uh, so first, though, I think so. America is, is obviously the biggest economy in the world. Let's look at the second biggest economy in the world, which is China. What's happening in China? Now, China, it's rare that the Chinese market has been this cheap. So China is struggling as an economy. They've got the opposite of what everybody else is struggling with. Everybody's struggling with inflation. In China, they're struggling with deflation. And so deflation is when prices go down. And so if prices keep going down, which means you can use your money to buy more goods the next day, that means that people postpone purchases, and so therefore unemployment grows, companies' profits come down, and the Chinese government is not stimulating the economy. So in the same world, we've got the biggest economy that is like shooting records. The, one of the second biggest economy, which is struggling in the doldrums, Bruce, the world is more synchronized than that. And so therefore, these two cannot coexist. What we know, the low expectations at this moment are in China, the high expectations in America. And so the question is, where are you going to pick? When you pick the low expectations, generally, whenever you pick low expectations in investment markets, plenty of opportunity to make money. When you pick high expectations, plenty of opportunity to be disappointed. Sibuli Sonkomalo, Portfolio Manager at the Old Mutual Investment Group, on what was quite a lacklustre day on the JSE. It finally turned, actually. I mean, we did see some nice gains play out on the All Share Index by the close of play this afternoon. It was a late afternoon rally that saw the JSE add about uh, two-thirds of a percent by the close after spending most of the day in the red. Uh, let us talk to Anthony Squazin now. Anthony has been covering a big story that it may escape much of your attention. And we're very critical on the show of the slow pace of the DMRE, the Department of Mineral Resources and Energy, in processing mining applications. And that criticism is justified. Occasionally, though, one does see a decision which makes you realize just how complicated these things are because the department's rejected an attempt by one of the richest families in India to create a $2 billion iron ore mine in KZN. Uh, the community of Makasaneni has objected to the mine and appears, so far at least, to be winning. Anthony Squazin from Bloomberg News is with us this evening. Just give us the background to the story, if you would, Anthony, the standoff that's been building, I think, for quite a long time. So, um uh, Jindal Steel and Power have been planning to dig a very large um, iron ore mine in Nomos, about 70 kilometers from Richards Bay. Um, 32 million tons a year, so that would make it the second biggest in the country after Kumba's flagship project. So 
There has been a lot of uh, community opposition to this. Now, the communities have argued that, um, you know, in order for this mine to go ahead, Jindal would need to move something like 3,000 homes and many hundreds of ancestral graves. Uh, Jindal has said that would only happen over a very long period of time as they expanded the mine slowly. And to their mind, they would only move 350 houses and would negotiate and come to an agreement on any graves. So... That's been the case for the last few years. Then today it emerged late last week that DMRE has refused their EIA, their Environmental Impact Assessment, um, basically because it doesn't see enough uh, guarantees that people's constitutional rights will be protected. So um, Jindal will uh, now be refiling that in the next few weeks. That's what they told us today. And we'll go through the same process again, and it might be accepted or it might be rejected again. The the difficulty here, of course, is that this mine and many like it would bring in huge amounts of money, not only in direct investment, but in jobs as well. And it's always that balancing act between the rights of communities who have lived on land, who are sitting on incredibly valuable resources, but who need to be treated with a degree of respect and a degree of collaboration, perhaps, that many investors don't necessarily appreciate? Yes, that's entirely possible. Although the company has operated in the region before, it operates uh, assets in Mozambique and recently signed a deal in Botswana, and it's got numerous uh, assets, iron ore mines, coal mines in India and power stations. So it's a fairly experienced company. Um, but it does seem they've hit a bit of an impasse here, and uh, it might take quite a lot of unraveling, or it could ultimately derail the project. Anthony Squazin, thank you very much indeed for bringing us up to speed on that story. Anthony Squazin is the South Africa writer at Bloomberg News this evening on The Money Show. Well, to the tra- untrained eye, as I just admitted, the Fuji film X. T5 looks a lot like my dad's 1970s era SLR camera, although it's about as far away from it as technology can get you. I like the retro look and feel, but it's largely down, I suppose, to what goes on inside. Um, It's on the the pricey side of SLR cameras, is it not? Toby Shapshak, the chief at Stuff Studios. Now... I'm told hello, that hello. Is there. I'm told. There you are. Hello, hello, hello. There you are. Um, the, hello, Bruce. The, yes, uh, and I you're right. Know. It does I, look like it's from you. the 70s. And I, and I particularly like the retro look of, of the Fujifilm X-T5. And I can tell you now, and I can reveal exclusively to you and your 702 listeners, Bruce, that the Fujifilm X-T5 is Stuff's Camera of the Year. And it is a very deserving camera of the year. Uh, it's also the camera that Stuff uses itself. We are big Fuji fans. We have an X-T4. We have an X-T2. And this is what we use to shoot our video. Um, and this is my very own X-T5 I'm using right now. And I have to say it is a wonderful upgrade. That You know, there's not much uh, wrong with the X-T4. And in between, there's been another... Uh, camera that Fuji made called the X-H2, just to confuse us. Um, but this this X-T5 is, is fantastic. It shoots great stills. It shoots great video. You can shoot 6K footage uh, or you can shoot 4K footage at 60 frames per second, which is what you'd need for television. With ease, it has a 40.2 megapixel sensor. It's also got Fuji's X processor 5 as an image processor. It's very good. And Fuji have really cracked this, the smaller sensor. You know, the, the, the cameras we grew up with, Bruce, or your father used would have been called a DSLR, a digital uh, lens yeah. reflex, a digital single reflex lens, um, where you look through the viewfinder. There was a complicated mirror structure that made sure you look through the actual lens. You don't need that anymore because you have a digital sensor. So when you look through the viewfinder or if you use the, the you know, the LCD panel at the back, which I must say is touch screen, you're seeing what you're seeing through the lens. And, and this was a breakthrough. 
when DSLRs came about in the, you know, the 60s and the 70s. But the quality of these, these images are great. And our, our, our director at Stuff Studios is a, is a genius called Darren Chats. And he shoots himself for all of his work with Fuji because he really likes the color and he likes the color treatment and he likes the quality of the images you get. But you're right. It has a, it has a black body and a chrome. The top of the camera is chrome. The viewfinder is chrome. All the little buttons are chrome. You can get it in black if you want. But I, I also like the, the, the retro chrome mm. feel. And it's really great. It's the, it's, you know, it's some of the same hardware in the, as the X, H2. Um, but it does everything really well. And, and what's fascinating, Bruce, is that in the old days, if you wanted to shoot video, you had to have a beta cam or a, a you know, the kind of big clunky cameras, uh, were, um, videographers or video, uh, the people who shot video for TV had to carry on their shoulders. Now you can do everything with the DSLR and you can plug in external microphones and you can, you can charge it. It's got incredible functionality built in. You can also, um, not you look through the viewfinder. I'm quite old fashioned. I always look through the viewfinder. I like that. <laughs> I like that experience because that's, you know, when we were at Rhodes many, many moons ago, that's how Whoa. I learned to take photographs. You know, Obi yeah. Oberholzer, the, the extraordinary oh. genius who taught us yeah. a, a course in photography. He had a Nikon F4, which were, the, you know, the workhorses of, of, of the photographic industry for a decade, if not more. They're still highly prized. Uh, I remember us telling him one drunken night, um, that, uh, the XT4 was really tough and they used it in Vietnam. So he buried it for a month. I think oh. he did put it in his plastic bag first, but you know, this, that's mm. the kind of ethos I come from, you know, Greg Marinovich and the yeah. Bang Bang Club that, you know, that, that hardworking photographer. I started my career actually as a photographer and turned out I could write better than I could take pictures. Okay. So I kind of moved but into that. You but know, nowadays. A, you, you know a thing or two about cameras. And what's so interesting about Fujifilm is it used to be Fujifilm and they're making digital cameras. The thing that Kodak kind of decided not to do, Fujifilm did do and is in the camera business. Yes. And I love the fact that this has got a, a touch screen because I, I, I think the first sort of digital SLR I bought, and it must be a dozen years old now, came up r roughly the same time as the first iPhones were coming out. And my now teenager was three or four at the time and was enthralled by the iPhone and loved the intuitive scrolling on it. He took one look at this um, SLR camera and looked at the LED screen and tried to make the picture move. And when it didn't react immediately to his finger swipe, went, it's broken, gave it back to me and never <laughs> looked at it again. Um, <laughs> and, and, the youth and of today, Bruce. Absolutely. But if it doesn't make sense intuitively, it makes sense that it should change. And what these guys have seemed to have done is take the best of what everybody is doing at the moment and put it into one box with a lens on it. Exactly, and I and I I'll relate to a, a story that I told. So my, the first digital SLR I bought was was a was actually a Nikon, and it was the first sub one thousand uh, dollar digital cam digital SLR you could get, and I, I was very proud of it, and I took pictures forever. I lent it to a friend who never returned it. Um, I would have put it in my archive, but this this is a is a vast upgrade, and in fact, from the XT four, it's it's a very impressive. Uh, new camera, as I said, it's won our, our stuff. Uh, we call it the gadget or the stuff awards, and it's won camera of the year, which is a, a very deserving prize. But it's still pretty complex. If you know what you're doing, which obviously I do, Bruce. You know, you you can you can change all of the settings. You can manipulate it. You can change the that has a whole bunch of color um, color color settings and color moods and tones as as you get with smartphones, um, which came first, the chicken or the egg, the the SLR, the smartphone camera. But if you really just want to shoot on full auto, you can. And I had this conversation with another photographer years ago, and he said to me, "What f-stop and what are you doing?" And I said to him. To be honest, I'm not a practicing photographer. I don't work with this all the time. And more often than not, I just shoot with full auto. And he was aghast. And he was like, can you? What are you doing? I said to him, yeah, but Chris, you, you're a proper photographer. You work all the time. You take pictures. You're always working with it. I don't. I, I use it occasionally. 
And frankly, the, the camera knows better than we do what the best settings are. I'm taking pictures of my son or I'm taking pictures of, you know, the, the, you know, my dog running in the garden with my son. Uh, so, so I don't really, I don't really feel like we, we lose anything by trusting this quite remarkable technology. I mean, it's a, this, this 40 megapixel sensor. I very seldomly talk about the megapixel on a DSLR because it's kind of irrelevant because it's, it is going to be good. It has, it captures extraordinary quality. You can shoot video with it. I know you think it's, it's expensive that it's 30, 27,000 Rand, but that's not that expensive for this, this equipment that you're getting. The high end stuff. No. I mean, if you try and buy a Hasselblad, Darren used to shoot on Hasselblads, you know, a digital yes. back for a Hasselblad. I remember him telling me probably 15 or 20 years ago was a hundred thousand Rand. And he's moved to, to, you know, Fuji because he loves the color. He loves how it reproduces things. Stuff, stuff's TV show. When we had a TV show on ENCA, I called it stuff on ENCA because it was stuff on ENCA. And, and stuff. actually I uh, wanted Toby. the acronym, which That's was SOE. Um, but the quality <laughs> is fantastic. And what yeah. you get is, you know, even a schmuck like me can pick up a camera and, and shoot really good, good pictures of my now, son. We, We've got somebody who's not a schmuck because Gerald is a photographer, a proper photographer, and has got a question for you on lenses. I hope you've got your A-game on. Yes. Gerald, quick question for Toby. Oh, Gerald, go. Hello, hello, hello. Just a quick question. Would you mind discussing briefly what lens or lenses you guys use, what you prefer? I would find that very interesting. I know the camera body does a lot of the work and gives a lot of the results, but the lenses are also extremely important if not invaluable i listen on the radio yeah, good thanks thank thanks, you Gerald. Gerald. and, and, Toby, and good you. question so so these days i mean there's a bunch of things involved in the lenses you can have multiple lenses so the the kit lens that comes with the camera is 18 to 55 but i grew up in the age where you always had a 55 uh, mil lens because that approximates the the, the human eye the the best I was always a fan of, of, of an ultra a wide angle lens, like a 28 mil. I love that. There's a bit of curvature yeah. on the end, but you get that with, with the 18 lens. I've got a very nice fixed 56 mil lens that I use. I have a, a 55 to 200 long lens that I've used and I've, and, and you, what, what, what's fantastic about the lenses is, is I use Fuji's own lenses because they work so well together with the camera. You can put them on full autofocus or you can, you can um, adjust the, the the depth of field yourself. So, so I'm a big fan of a wide angle lens. I like a I like a you know the kind of extra stretch that you get. 18 mil is a, is a little bit wider. So, so 55 mil. You'll you'll see the great photographers. You know, I was at I was at Eugene to Blanche's funeral taking pictures, um, and I was trying to lean into the the picture, and there was this guy standing on my left, and he was just solid. And I looked up, and it was Greg Marinovich. You know, and there he was shooting with a 55 mil fixed lens. Got you. You know, this man's won a Pulitzer Prize. Um, I think he might even won two. And he, and that's that's what you can get with a great camera. Um, and yeah. and I, I doubt he ever shoots on full auto. God forbid he hears me say but, that he'll be mortified. No. But and he taught Tell me at me the, Shack, at the Mail and Guardian. So yeah. unfortunately, he didn't tell you how to get Pulitzers. Because that's his secret. Toby Shapshak, the chief of the Stuff Studios. Thank you, Toby. Lovely insights this evening. And the thing about that 55mm lens is you better be close to the action. Very close to the action. You've got to have guts if you're in the news business for that. Otherwise, get big, fat, long lenses. 210mm lens. I think that's a 210mm. Anyway, uh, I like a long lens. It gets get closer to the action without having to be that close to the action. Toby Shapshak, Chief at Stuff Studios. I do think some of my morning coffee came out of my nose this morning, first thing, when I looked at a bold new billboard next to a McDonald's on Winnie Madikizela Mandela Drive, the old vehicle. The billboard looks massive. It is next door to McDonald's. And it reads, the bold new taste the M logo of McDonald's never saw King and the corner of the board peels off show it's a KFC advert. Mark McPherson is the chief marketing officer for KFC Africa. I'm not a massive fan of McDonald's coffee myself here, Dean. Let's be absolutely clear, Grant. I'd be very, very clear about that. But it's they've got bean to cup and clearly you're seeing this as a matter a, a massive opportunity 
to niggle them in terms of competition around breakfast. Why have you picked coffee as your boiling point, your point of differentiation that you want to drive home in the minds of the consumer? Hi, Bruce. Uh, obviously, thank you so much for the intro and the opportunity, and good evening to you and the listeners. Yeah, actually, this is not um, our first foray into breakfast. Um, last year, we relaunched our range working with Trevor Noah, obviously a huge uh, South African uh, celebrity, to remind consumers to eat chicken for breakfast. Um, this uh, is one of the opportunities we have as a brand. We are uh, the biggest QSI in the country and the most favorites. And we've seen breakfast and coffee as a, a great opportunity for us as a brand. But the, the, the taking on McDonald's head-on on coffee, what's, what was the thinking there? Yeah, so there's a lot of thinking that's gone behind it. Um, we believe we serve the best food in QSR. Um, but to be honest, if we looked ourselves in the mirror, we weren't necessarily serving the best cup of coffee. So my team uh, did an amazing job of reformulating the beans cup, launching new packaging, um, and we're proud to uh, launch a bold new taste. And we couldn't think of a better way to launch a bold new taste with a bold and disruptive piece of communication where we have a bit of fun um, and, yeah, uh, really disrupt the category. What did it take to get that site? Because it's a big site. It looks like the size of a tennis court. <laughs> it's, a, it's a poster and a half, that thing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was quite fortuitous, I must say. Uh, we actually have one of the largest out-of-home holdings in the country. And, you know, Winnie Mandela Drive is one of the most busiest roads in the uh, in Joburg, if not the country. So when the fight came up, it was a wonderful opportunity that we just had to grab. Because comparative advertising, you can't say KFC is better than McDonald's because it's got more calories, fewer calories, more chicken, less beef, whatever the case might be. You can't do comparative ads in that sense in South Africa. This one feels like it's skirting on the edge of comparison. It's it's cheekily close enough for you to get away with it, I suspect. It is cheeky. Um, but, yeah, we just look at ourselves and we want to be the best and boldest brand. And, again, this links to our coffee campaign where – yeah, we'll have a bit of fun. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen uh, other parts of the campaign. We've actually put a giant cup of coffee on Table Mountain on uh, the Nelson Mandela Bridge. Where was it there? Wasn't it there? Again, just having a bit of fun around our bold new taste and being uh, bold and provocative in this category. It's about getting attention, isn't it? I mean, and drawing yeah. attention to the fact that you've got a, a new offering. And if people fancy a cup of coffee in the morning and can't be bothered to stop at a coffee shop and want it on a drive through it's kind of an option for them. Our, our dear recently departed friend Andy Rice, I think, would have loved this campaign. He might, however, have cautioned against putting a coffee ad next door to the company whose coffee you are dissing. And Because and, I might drive past and I go, oh... Coffee, that's a good idea. Oh, there's a McDonald's. Let me get coffee. Not necessarily in the moment grasping quite the depth of your uh, devious plan to unseat McDonald's dominance in the coffee category, perhaps at breakfast time. Yeah, again, this is a, an opportunity we see. Um, it's not necessarily been one of our strong points uh, previously, but now we believe we have the offering to tell consumers that they can get a great cup of coffee for only twenty seven ninety at KFC. And when they come in, uh, what's better than that, they can get a delicious breaky crunch up for 15 bucks. So I wouldn't stop at anyone else. I'd definitely stop at a KFC drive-thru and taste a new amazing coffee and breaky crunch up. So it's the fight for breakfast rather than the fight for coffee. Coffee is like the gateway to the fight for breakfast then. For sure. I mean, breakfast is obviously a, a fairly large day part for us. Um, what we see with breakfast is it's often um, part and parcel with the coffee routine. We know that is a huge routine for many consumers, uh, whether that's in your morning or your morning break. And we've seen uh, not just coffee, but beverages as, as a big opportunity for us in South Africa. Grant McPherson, the Chief Marketing Officer for KFC Africa. Have you seen those billboards? I think they're bold. I think they're great. And I think if you are claiming that your coffee has got a bold new taste, well, then you may as well do some bold marketing around it. And they certainly have done precisely that. The Money Show. Business Books. If you've got decent genetics on your side, you look after yourself, you don't bump your head or have somebody else bump your head for you, odds are you'll make it into your 80s, some even into your 90s. But generally, we expect that the average life on this planet with people's various I mean, upbringings and environments was around 77 years. And that real kick in the guts you get when you look at 77 years and you realize that 77 years is just 4,000 weeks and 
As I've been saying this evening, you consider how quickly the weeks fly by. It makes you realize just how fast life really happens. It's a great reminder that life is, in fact, finite. And when you've got a finite resource, you look after that finite resource, perhaps a little bit more more with more care and circumspection than perhaps you would if you thought it was an infinite resource. Kojo Baffo is the writer, blogger, and media consultant. And it's a fabulous book, and it's it's so simple. And I, I feel sickened that I didn't think about it. I'm sure you feel sickened that you didn't think about it. But a title of a book, 4,000 week, uh, 4, Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, is a work of genius, Kojo. Just in the title, does the book live up to expectations? Absolutely. So, I mean, I... I I did the whole productivity thing. So I mean, I spent, I spent two, three years just kind of reading different books about how we form habits, how to use my time better. Um, and, and there's a whole array of books, um, that cover that topic from different angles. And funny enough, this was kind of the last in, in that journey. Um, and it, it is, like you said, it is very simply written. Um, your starting premise is, is a little daunting uh, when you think, yeah, living to you know your late seventies or eighties, only four thousand weeks um, on the earth, and yeah, I mean it's 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 a great book. I mean, I, I pulled so many quotes from it, and and I think one of the one of the ones that stood out for me, which I'd like to read, is that in practical terms, a limit embracing attitude to time means organizing your days with the understanding that you definitely won't have time for everything you want to do or that other people want you to do. And so at the very least, you can stop beating yourself up for failing. I mean, that's that's an absolute gem. Uh, one of my favorite things is when you say to somebody, hey, how are you? And they go, oh, busy. And they make, exactly. and they do it in a way that makes you think that, oh, they want me to think that they're very important. They've got no time for anything, but they, cause they're so busy. And I think we've become busier and I'm not too sure that all of that busyness necessarily is productive. I mean, it's not productive because, I mean, it's energy drain, draining. I mean, they talk about the, the efficiency trap. Um, kind of the, the more efficient you become, the more you do, uh, the, the more work you get. So if you get to inbox zero, I mean, I was one of those years ago who bought into the sole idea of inbox zero and you spend your time trying to get those emails in the inbox down to zero. Um, all that happens when you reply emails quickly is more emails come in. Whose law is it that work expands to fill the amount of time available in many people's lives? And if you are deeply efficient, then people give you more to do. And so that can be quite destructive. But it, it's this very, very sobering thing that you work out that you've only got about 4,000 weeks. And where many people might find that quite depressing for others, including myself, I think, for you, perhaps, um, I think it's a massive motivator because it does force you to prioritize and forces you to think about what it is that you choose to do on a daily basis. I think once you get your head around it, it's liberating. Um, because like you said, it is about it is about prioritizing. One of the things that um, Oliver Berkman talks about in the book is not having too many things as work in progress um, and, and being kind of very deliberate about about the things that you're working on, the things that you're putting your attention into. Um, and, and, and kind of, he talks about paying yourself first when it comes to time, um, and limiting your work in progress, as well as the, resisting the allure of middling priorities. Um, and, and so it's, it's about, it's about understanding, it's about being self-aware enough, which is part of the journey, I guess, mm. um, to know what is important, what needs to be focused on and what needs to be neglected. Um, because if we know that we, we're not going to have time to do everything, you might as well then take that finite time and devote it to things that matter to you. 
Does he give tips on how to prioritize? Because I think for most people, um, if the first hour of your day is spent prioritizing the next seven hours of your day, you probably would be a lot more productive. But especially in the beginning, I think feel terribly guilty about spending an entire hour in the limited eight hours that you have in that day actually thinking about the seven hours ahead. I wonder if we more of us did that, we'd be a bit more useful to the world. I mean, he does give a a bit of a kind of tips list towards the end. I mean, he kind of brings everything together, as as well as references a couple of a couple of techniques in terms of being able to limit your your work in progresses. And there's a I can't remember the name now. There's like a Japanese a Japanese take, technique that comes from that comes from manufacturing, um, which he which he also references. I've actually been looking at looking at getting that book um, as kind of one of my next reads. Um, but he does, he does kind of bring everything together uh, without, being, without being overly prescriptive. I think it's, it's more about, because like the starting premise of you only have 4,000 weeks if you live to 80 um, and you only have finite time. So stop stressing about, stop stressing about what you can't control. Um, I think for me that is the key that's the that's the paradigm shift once you've you know once you've figured that out within context of your own life um, whether it's professional whether it's personal etc um, then everything else starts to kind of make sense and fall into place but he does he, he does give some some tips towards the end of the book as he closes up the book there's so much science that is now looking at the concept of multitasking and this idea that you can be juggling five projects at once and every project is going to get your best attention because you're just so gifted and talented. This idea that you should have fewer works in progress, I think, also aligns then with the new science that says don't multitask. Don't think that you're clever. If you're not giving your full attention to what is most important, then it is diluted and it's not going to get your full attention because you're worrying about the other the three or four balls that you're trying to keep up in there at the same time. So nothing actually benefits. Absolutely. I mean, I, I considered myself a multitasker for many years. Um, the one thing I've spent the last couple of years trying to figure out is how to be a single tasker. Um, because like you're saying, the science has shown that even if you're jumping from one thing to another thing, there's there's a time frame of, there's whether it's a couple of seconds, I, I can't remember the exact time, uh, but when you switch to a different task, it takes you, it takes some time to get into, you know, get into focus with that particular task. So if you're jumping, you know, if you, if you jump between three tasks in 10 minutes and hypothetically, let's say it takes you a minute, um, to, to get that focus, to be able to vote, so zone in on the new task that you're tackling, that's already three minutes out of the 10 minutes that you're mm. losing. Um, and, and so it's being able to, when you shift to something, shift to that and focus on it, even if you're just taking 20 minutes or 30 minutes, but not, you know, not jumping between a task, the phone and email, because all, all that's happening is that you're losing time. Adrian Gore told me, and it's a second reference, shameless reference to the Genius Podcast series, um, but in episode three, I think it was, which we recorded at Gibbs at the Gordon Institute of Business Science at the launch of the book that became the podcast, he said when he was 27 and a half, he, discovered, he, he, deci- he decided to start Discovery. He launched Discovery, and from that moment, he felt that he was running out of time. He was 27 and a half years old. He was barely in the world of work by, by most people's mm. standards, yet he was filled with this absolute terror that he was going to run out of time before he'd built anything significant. And, I, and, that, and we explored that quite extensively in terms of it being the motivator of his life. And I think there, you know, the sooner you realize that time is limited – the more, the less likely you are to treat time as a commodity and more as an asset. Absolutely, and also not being, not being overwhelmed by it, like not not trying to control it. Um, I mean, my personal journey has been a a a discovery around what's important, and and also not looking at the world as this linear thing, you know, where I'm trying to achieve certain steps. Um, I. And, and he does talk about it in the book. And I mean, 
it's something that's been talked about extensively, kind of being in the present and being in the moment. And and now I try to actually just, you know, I, I focus on what I can. Um, my my little mantra is focus on what's right in front of you. Um, and as long as I am living a relatively content life and I can keep you know, food on the table and roof over the head and the kids in school, um, then... And, and I'm enjoying to a certain extent the work that I'm doing, then for me that's that's kind of what success is. And I think this this whole idea of of building and scaling and um, and kind of buying into this whole linear you know the linear trajectory in terms of when we started like nursery school and there's all these steps along the way, but the world has changed. Um, and I think the what four thousand weeks does is is force you to kind of take a step back and and revisit you know revisit your life and revisit why you do what you do there is i mean there there, there are numerous pitfalls with this philosophy and that one one of the pitfalls and i see myself falling into it by focusing on the here and now and everything that i can, can, can control is um and as somebody who's been trained on the the art of the deadline and screeching in just before the door closes um that it does limit your ability to plan and think ahead because you're so busy focusing on the now that you're not necessarily planning three steps ahead and anybody who's ever played chess knows that you need to have the end game in mind long before you even begin to make the moves. And I wonder whether this is not a risk using this sort of framework. Um, I think any framework is a risk, right? Um, it's about what kind of what makes sense and what works for you. Um, this, I mean, the cliche is, you know, tomorrow's not promised, right? Um, so the flip side is you can spend you can spend a lifetime and all of your energy working towards something that you're you're never going to actually reach. So we don't know what the future looks like. Um, we're not saying, I don't think the book says, and it's not about, okay, all you're going to do is just focus on what's happening right now without any kind of idea of something that you're working towards. Um, but it's, I think it's about bringing that attention great into the now. So, I mean, we've, we've built a world and we, we live lives where, Everything is about the future. Everything is about, you know, what life am I building? What work am I going to do? Um, what am, where am I going to be in five years, 10 years, 15 years from now? Um, and, and I think what books like this do is just remind us that um, you also need to take into consideration right now. Thank you very much, Kojo Baffer, who is the writer, blogger, and media consultant, reviewing a fabulous book for us. And when I saw it, my heart almost stopped far fewer than 4,000 weeks, simply because you look at it and you go, oh, my goodness gracious me. Um, all through your life, you think in years or whatever the time frames are, and you think, well, I've got ah, there's lots of time. You know, I know 77-year-olds, yeah, they, they, they're still pretty they're sprightly and pretty fit. There's still plenty of time to do X, Y, and Z, plenty of time to go on that holiday, plenty of time to go on that hike, plenty of time to spend time with that person. Um, right now, I would rather play on the Xbox or whatever the case might be. The moment you start looking at it week by week by week, it has to take on a different slant. No longer do you need to dread Mondays because Mondays are part of an, an exceptional opportunity, the setting up the week. If you're living... Um, you know, if, if you're living dreading Monday and can't wait for Friday, then you really need to read this book so that you stop wasting time and barking up the blim, whatever tree that you're barking up, because you are, you're wasting your life. Um, the author is Oliver Berkman. Uh, the book is called 4,000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals. Um, and it, it just uh, the wonderful studies of philosophy and ancient philosophers. And you, you realize that people have been battling with this idea for millennia. They really have. And he talks about embracing your limits, changing your life, and making the 4,000 weeks count. Good book, I think. Kojo Baffer, thank you very much indeed. The book tonight on The Money Show, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. The author, Oliver Berkman. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield was brought to you by APSA Corporate and Investment Banking, bringing you award-winning trade and working capital funding solutions to unlock the full potential of your business story. APSA is a registered FSP.